welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education as a scam that it is. I'm Kevin Prendeville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our students, we're losing an entire generation. Today, as always, we'll be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. Now, uh, we've talked about in uh, the beginning of this series about why the West exists in the first place, but also why we believe that it is uh, superior to other cultures, and that's not a bad thought or wrong uh, position to hold, um, or a uh, some sort of xenophobic or, or racist, whatever adjective you want to use, that's not what we're uh, advocating or anything, but, but to say that the West is better than others is not, um, is certainly not a, statement that can be even construed that way, unless you're simply just trying to uh, attack the West or Western philosophy, and so you're using uh, essentially playground insults. So we discussed that in the, in the first segment of uh, this new series, and then the second uh, we went over uh, really the beginning of um, modern Western thought, and that began with the Reformation, which uh, was a period of time in the earlier part of the 16th century. Uh, and we talked about Martin Luther and his role in changing how the common man viewed uh, scripture, the Bible, and how then academics who believed what Luther was saying and became Protestants, how it changed Protestant and even uh, some Catholic teachings and started to shape uh, some of what we believe uh, in the West and what we can trace ourselves back to. So it's important now to move beyond that into, we're going to start in 1618 with the Thirty Years' War and from then we're going to move into uh, Galileo and the uh, church in uh, that respect. We're going to go over Descartes uh, a bit, and then the French philosophes. This will start to give us some background for the making of the United States and will help us gain an understanding as to how we got here, how we think and, and why we think what we think, and also what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And all of this will eventually trace us right to the crime of the century. So we're going to start in 1618, and we left off the uh, previous uh, episode in the series um, just after the Reformation. We're going to skip over the Schmalkaldic Wars because uh, those essentially reaffirmed that um, they weren't going to get rid of Protestantism by uh, just murdering all the Protestants. There was too ingrained, or had become uh, too ingrained in uh, Germanic society, and many of the populace much of the populace uh, in the North converted to Protestantism along with the uh, princes. And so uh, a series of uh, essentially little skirmishes and, and, and border wars between uh, Catholic nations and Protestant nations uh, broke out. And, and there were, in Catholic nations, you know, you have the, the Huguenots in France who were Protestants living uh, near uh, what is today Belgium who were considered uh, heretics, heathens, and were really 
the um, treated uh, poorly by the, the historically uh, Catholic nations. And uh, even in, in, in the Netherlands, which went uh, to Protestantism, you had a lot of people, uh, you know, that wouldn't serve Catholics or were kicking, uh, you know, the Catholics out and forcing them down uh, into France. So you had uh, a lot of tension between uh, the two sides. And in 1618, there was actually um, uh, talks in Bohemia, which is uh, modern-day Czech Republic. And there was these uh, talks going on in, in Prague, essentially, between these Protestants and these Catholics. And, uh, uh, and they weren't, it wasn't uh, Catholic cardinals and it wasn't uh, high-ranking, you know, pastors in uh, Protestant, the Protestant field either, but it was more uh, dignitaries from uh, what was the traditional Catholic Bohemia and I believe it was Saxony or uh, the neighboring German states in the north and they were discussing other matters but it came to religion and you had both sides, the Bohemian emissaries were uh, Catholic and the uh, Saxon uh, emissaries were uh, very Protestant. And so the two sides essentially became engaged in a theological battle in terms of, you know, they were, they were yelling and talking with each other. And so the, uh, the Protestants actually grabbed the Catholic emissaries and threw them out the window. And there are two different ways, depending on where you lived, you got the news differently. If you were uh, Protestant, you got the news, and these were old woodcuts, and in those days they would have a very limited, you'd have a newspaper that would get printed, and then it was bought, we discussed this uh, with Martin Luther, and then it would be bought um, by essentially someone who could read, and then they would stand up on, uh, not necessarily soapbox, but it's what we would call today, it was a, a platform, and they'd stand up there, and because they could read, they would shout the news to the public. So if you lived in, uh, northern Germany or Sweden or Denmark, one of the uh, more Protestant nations, it was uh, the Protestants were so enraged by these Catholics that they threw them out the window and God hates Catholics too and so they landed in a pile of manure, which that fact is undisputed that um, because in those days roads obviously dominated by cattle and so uh, they didn't really have any clean way of disposing with uh, you know cattle products so just kind of got left in the streets. It would get sweep, swept off into the, you know, corner sort of. But you you know how nowadays in cities and everything, when they do the horse tours and a, you know, horse craps on the road, it doesn't really get dealt with uh, necessarily, especially not in places like San Francisco. But that's another topic. Um, and when that happens and all you've got are horses, you can imagine that it gets uh, uh, pretty pretty piled up. And so uh, these Catholic emissaries actually survived the fall by doing that. But if you lived in a Catholic nation, if it was, you know, Austria, uh, Bohemia, uh, or, you know, France or Spain, uh, you got the news that um, even though the, the Protestants who were uh, clearly under the influence of the devil uh, decided that they were going to throw these uh, honest Catholic dignitaries out of the window, uh, God's helped them and uh, let them file, uh, fall in a pile of manure so that they wouldn't die. So you have the, uh, the two sides of the story, but 
the gist of the same. These sides don't like each other, and to the point where they're willing to insult each other's nations, and eventually what erupted into uh, a war between the two nations, because obviously that is uh, a slight, and that's something that uh, no prince was going to take lying down. And so, essentially, it kicks off a series of, of, of alliances where the uh, Protestant North Germans and the Catholic Southern Germans, uh, so that's uh, Warsburg, that's uh, Bavaria, uh, the large, very large Austria, and even Spain, because Spain was owned by the Habsburgs uh, family in what were the... Um, uh, who's the ruling family of Austria and the, by extension, the Holy Roman Empire? Uh, the Habsburgs also uh, had married into the royal family in Spain. So Spain, which is also Catholic, was a part of this uh, erupting war. Now we're not going to go through the, uh, the the movements of the Thirty Years' War. And we're not going to go through the, the the military implications for it, although it did uh, modernize a lot of the militaries into what we would think of as uh, 18th and 19th century warfare, you know, the muskets and the firing lines, a lot of that kind of was born out of uh, the 16, uh, the Thirty Years' War in the, in the 1600s. But what's interesting here, and what some people will attempt to point out as a result of, of, the, of the Protestant Reformation, is that in the, uh, now the war started in 1618, and late into the 1620s, uh, uh, it was pretty obvious that the uh, North Germans, the Protestants, were going to lose. The Austrians, um, and along with the Spanish, who had, uh, though they had the defeat at the Spanish Armada, were still uh, very, very wealthy and could afford, uh, if not their own larger military, they could, avo uh, they could afford to pay for other countries uh, to s support them with, with manpower. And so the, the North Germans are getting crushed. Uh, Sweden is the one holding their own. Sweden at this time owns a lot more land than they do nowadays, uh, including Norway. They'd even at one point moved all the way and made a move on Moscow, which they lost. But Sweden, which owned also a couple uh, enclaves on the, the European mainland, uh, it was pretty clear that they were not going to be able to uh, Hold, hold out against both the Spanish and uh, the Austrians on land, even though they were uh, a very strong uh, military and, and very revered, uh, they just didn't have the manpower. And so uh, Cardinal Richelieu, who was at that time uh, for the French, um, who were historically Catholic and at this time very, very Catholic nation, Cardinal Richelieu, who's the de facto uh, ruler in the country as Louis Fourteenth. Uh, is technically the king, but he's not old enough to rule yet. He's probably eight, nine years old. And uh, because of this, uh, he, Cardinal Richelieu, um, decides that, remember, the, the Habsburgs own Spain, the Habsburgs own Austria. They, now, if should they stand to win uh, this war, they could turn the tide against the Protestants, turn force uh, electors and force... Um, nations to turn Protestant or turn from Protestant to Catholicism and that would give them that much more power in Europe. So in order to 
stab at the Habsburgs and try to quell their power, the historically Catholic, and again, very, very Catholic France actually allied with the Protestants. And this was to um, in, helped greatly in prolonging the war and uh, really effectively uh, hurt Spain's involvement, obviously France is right there, and gave uh, the Swedish and the uh, remaining North German states just that extra manpower uh, that French were able to provide. And the interesting thing about what became of the Thirty Years' War, which was ended uh, in 1648 by the Treaty of Westphalia, was that it essentially ended in a white peace. There was no great border changes. There was no, though we wouldn't recognize that map of Europe today, it was not a peace treaty that served just the interests of princes, that it was a referendum, for lack of a better term, on Christianity as it was before and as it was after. See, because in those days much of the military fighting was not done on the battlefield, but armies would, because it took that long to, to move them, would rarely actually meet each other and so you would have them uh, uh, go through these towns where one side would go through this town and they'd kick out all the supporters uh, forcibly who uh, were on the other side and they would uh, you know hang them from trees and they would you know just force them out take what was valuable in the town and leave and then the other side would come in at some other point maybe they would have uh, won uh, against the the side that just came in but most likely they just didn't meet each other, this army comes in, they kick out all the supporters for the other side, take what's valuable from them, and then they leave. And so you have these really interesting paintings, uh, contemporary paintings that came out uh, around this time where uh, you'll see uh, either French towns or German towns, and they're just desolate, and there's, it's almost apocalyptic, and there's, you know, people hanging that, that, that at one army at some point hung that, that's been left there. And so Europe itself, the mainland, uh, really faced a lot of uh, destruction because of this war, even though, um, you know, in those days it wasn't like World War II where it was armies moving to meet each other. Uh, it was armies moving around with an objective and occasionally they would run into the other side and somebody would win. The Treaty of Westphalia was essentially a document for both sides. It was a secular document. It was not you know, ratified by the Pope. It was not uh, something that is theologically based, as in it's not a monk who is writing this. This is statesmen writing this. But they changed how Christians act out what it says in Scripture. And essentially the, the idea was that you cannot kill somebody for being another religion. We often have this, these ideas of, uh, you know, Christendom that, 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 you know, it's really about the Crusades and, uh, you know, the, the, the Pope in the medieval era that 
when they were sending people to Jerusalem was it was about you know it was about power and you know they really just want they want to kill everybody um, who isn't a part of their religion uh, you know and, and and modern day scholars will say you know it's no different than Islam today and that would have been true if Christianity never evolved past that it used to be a defense in court that you could say you know he was a heretic I killed him in the name of God we talked about uh, Thomas More who was a uh, famously a, a lawyer for King Henry VIII and uh, Thomas More was uh, had the great book and movie about him called A Man for All Seasons because he's at the same time he's a modern man he's a renaissance man and he's also a medieval man and he's a medieval man because he believed that you could kill heretics legally uh, renaissance man because of his love for the law and classics and rationality and then a modern man because he you know bothered to teach his daughters to read and taught them in different languages this thinking was not just for the stupid people the, uh, the the common man quote unquote the academics the clergy the statesmen they all believed that you could kill somebody for being a heretic the Treaty of Westphalia what was clear about it was that was no longer that thinking had shifted that thinking was gone because all this destruction in Europe all of the wars leading up to the Thirty Years War all of the things that resulted from it didn't change people truly from being one side or the other it killed people but but they didn't it didn't help one side win anything all that happened is that people died and a statesman that's worth his salt will realize that dead people doesn't make very good policy as in if you are supposed to be protecting the people of your town of your city of your duchy whatever you own a lot of them dying a lot of them being hung from trees isn't the best policy for making sure that you or your family stays in power without the townspeople rising up so with that the biblical backing of course is um, scripture that says get angry but never let the, the the sun go down on your anger but sin not murder of an innocent person is a sin but it doesn't mean if you truly believe in the theology of your side that that you hate or dislike the person any less but don't you can't outright kill them without because that that is in of itself a sin now, I hope that makes sense because that in many cases displays the rationale for the West which is not a pacifist non aggressive tone but a an ethos that is deeply entrenched in what it believes it has a deep backing but isn't willing and doesn't want 
to outright kill anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. That is the idea of tolerance, a presupposition of difference. It doesn't mean that I'm going to nullify or concede my position just to make somebody feel good. I'm still going to stand on my side of the aisle, but I'm not going to cut your head off. I'm not going to blow up your home because you believe what you believe. But I'm at the same time not conceding my point. Unless, of course, you provide a good counter-argument. Unless, of course, you uh, uh, can display that, that, that I am wrong. That in some way you can persuade me that to come over and join your side. And that's the nature and spirit of debate. And that's why in the West we have a lot of that uh, idea. That's why I believe the reason for the Enlightenment, which is the next episode, was not only created in the time it was created, but also in the West, because the West had advanced past, I'm going to murder you for, for your beliefs. And that cuts against a lot of the accusations against people who are religious that, you know, you kill anyone who doesn't believe what you believe. That's at least for Christendom, that's been out of the common, out of the common dialogue for, for 300 years at this point. That Christianity at some point let the world believe what it wants to believe without conceding its own point. But before we, we do move on, we are going to look at uh, some of the other aspects uh, that don't involve a lot of this uh, wartime. Um, and, and really, the, the Thirty Years' War covers much of um, the 17th century. But the uh, other development that came out of the, this time period that, that must be addressed is the development of scientific theory and philosophical theory. And as far as uh, science goes, Galileo, who we know is famous for essentially proving uh, Descartes right, uh, Rene Descartes, who believed that the, the, the world and the earth revolved around the sun. Now, I couldn't explain to you all of the scientific things that go into that. That's not my field or my expertise. But I think most people, of course, there are people who believe the Earth is flat and all that, but I think most people would, would agree that the Earth revolves around the sun, but uh, it was a held belief for generations that the sun was a, revolved around the Earth, that the Earth was the center of the universe, and that's simply from a lack of, of evidence. Uh, Galileo had a, a telescope and which was originally a, a military design to view ships that were coming in potentially to invade the harbor or any other um, if you were on a ship you would you know be able to use one but Galileo pointed at the sky and in addition to all the other things he was able to accomplish he was able to prove mathematically that, that the sun was reasonably you, you could 
reasonably proved that the sun was the center of the universe in his day. Now we know, obviously, with uh, technology that, that that is true, undoubtedly. You can see it with your own two eyes, even if you're not a scientist. And he was, you know, declared a heretic. He was vilified by the Catholic Church, which held on to the scripture belief that the, that the earth was the center of the universe. And this, for many people, drives at another point that, that religion somehow always contradicts itself with science, that, that the two of them are in an interlocking uh, war and you know one of them is going to lose at some point. And the only entities that had any stake in making sure that Galileo was proven wrong uh, was the Catholic Church because in their structure the uh, the papacy can't be wrong. The, the Pope can never err. That was uh, a line from Dictatus Pape from uh, the uh, year uh, 1090. So essentially if all these popes have said this, we can't now go back on that because the Pope and the Church has never been wrong according to the dictates of the Pope. Uh, they will never be wrong and so, therefore, Galileo, uh, you know, must be silenced. This is more of a theocratic argument, as in the church, especially the Catholic church, because of its rigid structure, which isn't based in scripture so much as based in power, needed Galileo to be wrong in order to keep its own power structure in place. Galileo, though not everyone believed him, did not face this same resentment or pushback from the Protestant nations. And this is simply because Protestant theology is a little bit more flexible when it comes to new developments in science and new ideas and how that can fit into scripture. Not that the Protestants are you know, spineless and always conform with society, but because they're so much more based on the scripture and not in what uh, man has designed for himself in the Catholic Church, the ability for uh, someone like a Galileo to actually flourish had he been in a Protestant nation uh, is much greater. And what's interesting too is the, the next shift that happened in Western thinking was what, what this essentially, what, what Descartes, who was a, a, a philosopher um, around this time, had been arguing was that essentially though he believed in a God, he called it substance, he called it a being that could essentially live outside of the known universe because he had to create everything, so in and of itself he was perfect. He didn't trust uh, the scriptures. Now, at one point, if a philosopher didn't believe in God or didn't believe in the scriptures, they were thought of as a crazy person. Now it's almost a given that 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 you know that that they're that's what they're questioning but this shift didn't happen until 
reason and science and being able to empirically prove your point began to take hold in the philosophical realm. And this shift would not have happened if the church did not react the way it did to very obviously proved uh, a scientific theory, whether it was uh, uh, Galileo, whether it was, uh, you know, later with Darwin proving uh, at least to uh, a great extent evolution. What it, when it came to science, when it came to proving what you believe and, and showing others why you believe it, it no longer became about, you could no longer base your arguments on authority. As in, this is what the king has said, so it's true. This is what the pope has said, so it's true. It had to be, this is what I observed. This is my uh, scientific sense. This is my, this is the math to prove it. This is the exact, this is my hypothesis. This is the exact experiment that, that uh, I went through uh, so that you can recreate my experiments. This is how I got to my conclusions. It became empirical based. And that's the other thing with Western philosophy is that you have to, you can no longer appeal to authority. Now because of that, we get to uh, questioning even the nature of government and the right to question because before this scientific revolution, which was a very, very long process that eventually uh, really came to the forefront in the 1800s, but it was started way back here, that the ideas that were started here uh, allowed people to more freely question traditional structures. And so when we talk about uh, traditional structures, we're talking namely about the nature of government. So have you ever wondered why we have a split government in the sense we have Congress, we have the Senate, we have uh, even the Electoral College, we have the ability to vote, and we have an executive with the president, and we have the Supreme Court. All of this starts with the writing of the Persian letters and this man named Baron de Montesquieu. Now he is a wealthy Frenchman. He is willing to question the nature of government. And at this time, the French government was an absolute monarchy, uh, though the nobility did have power, uh, essentially what happened in the early in the late 1600s was uh, Louis the 14th who was an absolute absolutist essentially said that I am the king I've been placed here by God and I'm going to rule this country and he essentially eliminated the ability of the French no of the French nobles to uh, control their own land and really consolidated them into uh, one force that was under the king so Baron uh, Montesquieu is not questioning this structure, but questioning his own role in the nobility. He is a little bit before Louis XIV's time, uh, only by a few years, in the sense that by the time Montesquieu has finished writing, Louis XIV is still dealing with uh, rebelling nobles. And so uh, uh, Baron begins to write essentially that power within the government will always be abused 
And he goes back and he says, because of humans' ability to sin, capacity to do evil, when you put power into their hands, when you give them that absolute right to power, they will abuse it. They will inherently become tyrannical. But you can't, but nature at the same time abhors a vacuum. So you can't just get rid of that power by having nothing. You can't have just anarchy. So instead, he would argue that you need to, uh, as Madison would say, uh, check ambition with ambition, but you need to split this power into equal rights of different branches of government. You have one that makes the laws but can't enforce it. You have one that enforces the laws but can't make it. And these powers split will essentially uh, check each other and keep a balance of power of the government where the government's working against itself. It's not working against the people. And this idea is the entire setup, the, the, the planks for, as we talk about in the next episode, we're going to talk more about making America. This will work a little bit with our Connecting the Dots podcast, which uh, premieres on uh, last Saturday. So be sure you check that out. But the uh, entirety of the framework, questioning authority. Christianity has gotten the general public to accept that we need to be tolerant of other ideas, but don't concede your own point. And also, if you're going to make a statement, you're going to have to prove it with historical fact or mathematical fact or something that cannot be disputed. You can no longer appeal to authority. That framework, when combined with the what was born out of the Reformation, has led us to a point in which not only is the Enlightenment inevitable, but we will see that the United States as a country that embraces all these ideals, what makes it better than all the nations of the world around it? And eventually, and quite, uh, quite soon, in just a few weeks, we will be able to decipher the entirety of the, the backdrop for this great crime of the century.